So today we turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses, Isaiah 9, 8, and all the way through uh, chapter 10, verse 4. This is a prophecy of judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. As I've told you before, it's a little bit confusing when you get into the Old Testament because the northern kingdom breaks off has a capital in the the city of Samaria. So you'll hear these references. I've reminded you this before in Isaiah, talking about Jacob and Israel and Samaria. He's talking about the northern kingdom. So after dealing with a lot of judgment pertaining specifically directly to the southern kingdom of Judah and the capital of Judah, which is Jerusalem, in the house of David, the line of kings in Jerusalem and Judah. Now we turn our attention to the north again. Hear now God's word from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 through Isaiah 10, verse 4. The Lord, Adonai, has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamore figs have been cut down, but with cedars we will replace them. So Yahweh, so the Lord, raises up the adversaries of resin against him, and stirs up his enemies. Aram on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his, the Lord's anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Yet the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So the Lord, cut off from Israel, head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for every one of them is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks disgraceful foolishness. And for all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Because wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorn bushes. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they coil upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. He cuts off what is on the right hand and still is hungry, and he eats what is on the left hand and is not satisfied. A man will eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. For all this, 
His, the Lord's anger, is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who enact wicked decrees and official writers who write trouble to turn away the needy from justice and to rob the lowly of my people from what is right so that widows may be their spoil. The Hebrew here, shalal. And the fatherless may plunder. Hebrew, bazaz. And what will you, you all, y'all do on the day of accounting in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to bow down among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his, the Lord's, anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. When the man who for decades was the richest man, not only in the United States of America, but also the world, John D. Rockefeller Sr. died, a man who, by the way, became a Christian and became very charitable, nevertheless a very, very wealthy man, self-made billionaire. Back in the day when it was a big thing to be a millionaire, a billionaire, John D. Rockefeller. When he died, you know, people, a lot of people are fascinated with wealth. They breathe heavily over wanting stuff and imagining how cool it would be to be that rich. There are people who worship you know, rich, wealthy things. One of the curious worshipers of wealth asked Rockefeller's accountant, because we're always fascinated with those kind of numbers, you know, how much did he leave? And the accountant replied, everything. He left everything. He didn't take a dime with him when he died. Does the accounting work differently with you? What do you think? With me? No. I have yet to see, and I've been to a lot of funerals, I've presided over a lot of funerals, I have yet to see, as the old saying goes, a hearse with a trailer hitch on the back and a U-Haul full of junk being pulled behind it to the grave. Y'all ever seen that? Now, the pharaohs and the Egyptians and the powerful people of other cultures tried to pull that off with the pyramids, but it did not work. Sad news, maybe, for some of us. How much will you leave? And whom will you leave? You can see in the sermon notes I laid that before you as basic questions to meditate on. How much will you leave? I've got some blank space for you there. But I pretty much already told you the answer, right? Whom will you leave? Which relationships of earthly people and dogs and cats and everything else, whom will you leave? And the answer is, guess what? Everyone. Everything and everyone. Which reminds us of Jesus' parable of the rich fool. Jesus' parable of the rich fool, which we read in Luke chapter 12. What, what, what's happening now is Jesus 
this is in the section of Luke, the big, long section of Luke, when Jesus is clearly heading toward Jerusalem in his last months and his last weeks of public ministry before he arrives in Jerusalem, heading into the Passover time. And on the way, as he's teaching um, his apostles and other disciples to have no fear and not to be afraid to stand up for him and to name his name publicly and even to be persecuted for it. And he gives them the assurance the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say when you are under fire, Christian. In the midst of all that, you know, some pretty big high-level teaching, um, somebody from the crowd calls out to Jesus, teacher, teacher, Tell my brother, presumably older brother, to divide the inheritance because I'm ready for my stuff. I'm ready to live. Tell my brother, make my brother, in other words, declare a ruling. You are a rabbi and perhaps you're the king, so you should be able to do this. Um, tell my brother to divide the inheritance so I can get my stuff. And Jesus rebuffs, rebuffs the man, rebukes him and says, who made me? judge or arbiter over you. Jesus refuses to get into this family squabble over money, but he turns to his uh, disciples and his apostles and says, beware of all kinds of covetousness and greed. Because earthly people, human people, people who are headed surely enough to hell are obsessed with money and stuff and things that will not last. Remember, I've been teaching you about this, Jesus says. And then he goes into, Jesus goes into this parable. Uh, Luke 16, uh, chapter 12, picking up at verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, the rich man did, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my present barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, that's the language Jesus uses. I will say to my soul, because you know at the judgment, it's your soul that is accountable before God. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Now relax, live the good life, eat drink and be merry. Jesus continues in the parable, but God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And Jesus gives the judgment then. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the punchline in Jesus' parable is that after this guy makes all his plans about the big life and what he's going to do tomorrow and next month and next year and all the trips he's going to take and all this stuff he's going to enjoy, God comes in and says, tonight, it's not just that you're dying, you are going to die, but your soul is required of you. And you may remember, Jesus says, don't be afraid of people who can kill your body. If you're going to fear someone, fear the one who can condemn your soul to hell. 
your soul is required of you this very night, and now the punchline, and who's going to get all your stuff? <laughs> and then the judgment. Jesus says, so it is with the man, or in other words, everyone, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All that brings us back to and sets the stage for Isaiah's prophecy of the Lord's hand judging Israel. And here's the thing I want to tell you. By the way, I have some good news. There are loads of chapters in Isaiah of judgment on various nations too, in addition to judgments on Judah and Israel. I'm only going to summarize probably on a couple Sundays some of those judgments relating to uh, the other nations and connect them with the judgments on Assyria <laughs> and Babylon because I'm ready to move on as we move into the school year to some of the higher moments in Isaiah, kind of in later chapters, as well as some of these earlier ones we've touched on already. Uh, but, but here we have this judgment on, as I said, the northern kingdom of Israel. And what's really interesting is this judgment, although Israel is about to go down to the Assyrian Empire, it's about to be wiped out. And all the members of the tribes of the northern uh, kingdom that don't make it down, don't flee to, or aren't already in Judah, they're going to be carried off in exile. Now, some of them are down in Judah. Some of them make the right decision pretty early or late in the day, whatever happens. Uh, but uh, most of them carried off into exile. This is when we're in this time frame, remember now, um, in Isaiah chapter 7, in addition to the prophecy about Emmanuel, spinning off of that, Isaiah gives this 13-year sequence. I, I told you about this because he talks about a bar mitzvah sequence. He talks about the boy before the boy knows between to choose between right and wrong. That's at the age of 13, 14, bar mitzvah conclusion period time. So there's this, this little prophecy in there around 735 that says by 722, this is all going to be gone up north. And sure enough, it was. Sure enough, it was. Um, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, fell in 722. But even before that, in the 730s, Damascus goes down. The capital of Aram, or what might be called Syria, and also the northern territories of Israel. Naphtali and Zebulun around the Galilee. They go down first. The darkness hits Naphtali and Zebulun first. And you'll need to remember that because when we get closer to Advent, we'll come back to Isaiah chapter 9 and this prophecy about for unto us a child is born. You may remember the way that prophecy starts about the people who walked in darkness, you know, having a great light. The light has come to the people living in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Y'all remember that? And it goes all the way for unto us a child is born. And it's this prophecy that God will reclaim and restore his promises and his people. And he's going to start by, guess where the Messiah grows up? Right up there where Assyria first took. In Zebulun and Naphtali, in the Galilee of the Gentiles. 
Kind of interesting, right? But, but, but so we're in this sequence where Israel, the northern kingdom, during this prophecy uh, period of Isaiah in the 730s and into the 720s is going down. It's about to go down. And so here, Isaiah turns his attention to the Lord's hand judging Israel. But what I want you to understand, and I'll come back to this with the other judgment passages that we do deal with, these passages are primarily, immediately, a message to Judah, where Isaiah is prophesying. So in other words, it's about Israel, and it is a prophecy to and about Israel, but it's also primarily to Jerusalem and Judah. Okay? It's not like Isaiah. We don't read that Isaiah traveled up to and preached for two, three years in Samaria. You will not find that in the Bible. Nor, by the way, are you going to find that now Jonah has to go to Nineveh, but you're not going to find that Isaiah goes to Nineveh and preaches to the Assyrians when he brings oracles against the Assyrians. He doesn't go to Babylon and preach to the Babylonians. So when he's going to be talking about Babylon, it, it, it's, it's about them and to them in, in one sense, but it's also primarily about and to Judah and Jerusalem. And then by extension, guess to whom it's also addressed? Voila, right? So uh, you need to understand this. That's my point one in the sermon today. Israel's, uh, Isaiah's prophecy of God's hand judging Israel in Isaiah 9, 8 through 10, 4 is really a message to Judah and to us. And I think I may have put us in capital letters because it's not just to us Christians, but it's also in one sense to the, you got it right, the U.S. too. <laughs> okay, so th there we have it. Now recall the prophecies of judgment on Judah and its capital of Jerusalem and the leaders of Judah. You get that hard and heavy in the early chapters. I mean, initially Isaiah does deal with Judah and the north with Israel too in you know, chapters 1 and 2, but then we break off and... Really, the message to Judah, the, the, the hardline message to Judah is in chapter 5, the prophecy about the vineyard and the vineyard workers who are totally unfaithful. And then you move on into dealing with the house of David in chapter 7 and dealing with Ahaz and his last chance. We've talked about that. But now, um, in chapter 9, beginning at verse 8, you have a four-stanza oracle, four stanza oracle, or four strophe oracle, if you happen to be more literarily oriented, four strophe oracle against the northern kingdom of Israel. How do, how do I say that? Why do I say that? Because it's, it's obvious at the very beginning. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 9, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. You're talking, those are terms for the northern kingdom at this point. And, uh, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we're going to rebuild with dressed stones, and the sycamore figs have been cut down, but with cedars we will replace them. So the Lord raises up the adversaries of Rezin. May remember this from my earlier sermons. Rezin is the king in Damascus, of the Arameans or the Syrians. And he's about to go down to Assyria, okay? And his enemy, the Assyrian Empire, is gonna take Israel too. That's what was just prophesied right there. The adversaries of Rezin will come against 
Jacob or Israel to. And then we're kind of falling back in time. I mean, Isaiah does this a lot. Back before then, you got all this harassment by the local kingdoms, Aram on the east and the Philistines on the west of our Israel with open mouths. And then you get this refrain that marks off the four stanzas. It's at the close of every one of the four stanzas, every one of the four strophes. Um, For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For all this, for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Uh, God is sending a message to you, to me, to us. Let me be very clear about this. This this word is still living in a two-edged sword. This is a message from God to you, to us, to Christians in this age. But back to the story of Israel, after generations of sin and prosperous corruption, when different levels of God's discipline and warnings and judgment do not wake the people up and call them back to repentance, you get increased levels of punishment and judgment. Okay, this is what has happened. And you could say, I thought God is loving. What's all this talk about God's anger and God's hand? This is folks, This is after hundreds of years of corruption and abuse and sinful neglect of all of God's warnings. This is what what this scripture is telling us. Have you ever, can you imagine a nation that has so much wealth and just gets obsessed with wealth instead of the God who gave it to them for over 200 years and is now under judgment? Can you imagine a situation like that, folks? Well, that's what's going on with Israel. A nation that has been so wealthy and powerful for over 200 years and increasingly with great ferocity is turning away from God's moral standards. Can y'all imagine a nation like that? Or is this just ancient history? I don't know, you tell me. And, And we get this refrain, for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now, that refrain you can actually get against Judah. The first time we heard that refrain, read that refrain, it's back in Isaiah chapter five, verse 25, when he's bringing judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, 525, Isaiah 525. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Ever heard that before? Yeah, we get it again in chapters nine and 10, talking about the Northern Kingdom now, not just the Southern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom. But of course, as I've been telling you, this message is really immediately for Isaiah. He's a prophet to the Southern Kingdom of Judah and to Jerusalem and to the house of David. He's saying, what's going on up there? Let me tell you what's going up there. And it's happening down here, and it's going to increasingly happen down here if you don't repent. Because all of this is an invitation for Judah and God's people in the south to repent. And all of this, let me repeat, is a message from God and an invitation to those of us who are in the south to repent. Are y'all getting the connection here yet? I hope you are. Um, What we're dealing with here is generation upon generation decade upon decade of arrogant sin of the nation, of its leaders and people, continuing in spite of God's word. I mean, God gave Amos and Hosea, you know, the word of the Lord, 
came to the north and it fell on them. You're talking about like, like, like a century of prophetic ministry, including Amos and Hosea, and the people ignored it. The arrogant sin of the nation and of the nation's leaders and the people continued in spite of God's word, and you get increasing levels of warning and discipline. You know, God gives increasing levels of warnings when he calls us to repent. I wish God would speak to me. So, well, he is speaking to you. And for all this, his anger... Um, by the way, notice this. Verse 13. Yet the people did not turn to him, the one who struck them. Seriously. Yes. Can you believe that might happen to a nation? What do you think? Yet the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor did they seek the Lord of hosts. Which is kind of crazy because they're seeking all these military alliances with little kingdoms and even, in the case of Judah, with an empire that has an impressive army. Who's got the best army in all creation, overall creation? The Lord of the heavenly armies. You want to turn to me, God says? I mean, how dense can you be? So this refrain, again, divides this four stanzas. You've got 9, 8 through 12, 9, 13 through 17, 9, 18 through 21, and then 10, 1 through 4. You get this progression of increasing moral decay, of political and religious leadership that's corrupt, and then even the people are hypocrites. Although God gets onto the leaders, and he's most severe with the leaders who take advantage of the poor and the fatherless and the widows, he says, ultimately, even the fatherless and the widows... They've been sucked into the system. They're taking from the system the same way even the leaders do. Can you imagine that in a nation? Possibly, yeah. And, you know, you go from early harassment of the neighboring states like the Philistines and the, uh, the Syrians or the uh, Arameans to then ultimately Assyria's coming. Now, let me tell you one little odd thing that is a little bit jarring, is this passage that I've just read from, and, and a particular verse of it, has been totally taken out of context by political leaders in the United States in the early 21st century. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. After the attack of 9-11, which we all know was a horrible, evil, satanic level even, attack on the United States of America on September 11th, on September 12th, on the floor of the Senate, the United States Senate, Tom Daschle, the majority leader at that point of the United States Senate, quoted, I'm not kidding you, I mean, it's, it's almost amusing, but it's also jarringly ominous, quoted Isaiah 9:10, which is a oracle of judgment on people who are proud and arrogant and saying, we're going to rebuild and we don't need God to rebuild. I'm not joking with you. Tom Daschle quoted Isaiah 9:10 on September 12, 2001. He said, there is a passage in the Bible from Isaiah that I think speaks to us all and our nation at this time. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone and the fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. I mean, a leader of our nation quoted an oracle of judgment on the proud and arrogant nation of Israel and invoked it for our nation. 
You want to talk about taking a passage out of context. Folks, don't just read the little quote that's on Twitter. You need to actually read the Bible and find out where the quote is coming from. And then, at a special commemoration on the third anniversary of 9-11, in 2004, Washington, D.C., Senator John Edwards, who at that point was candidate for vice president of the United States of America, he was running with John Kerry. Some of you who are old like I am may remember this back in 2004. John Edwards did the same thing. He quoted Isaiah 9:10, saying, today on this day of remembrance and mourning, we have the Lord's word for us. I hope this isn't the Lord's word for us, but this is just amazing. Major political leaders who ought to know better quoting oracles and invoking oracles of judgment on the United States of America. And in all this, God's judgment calls an arrogant nation to repentance. God's judgment we get from this passage, and I know this passage is heavy. I understand this is a heavy passage, but God's judgment is persistent, seeking repentance. And notice the order of the statement, the refrain. It comes after each stanza, which means even after Israel is totally defeated and annihilated, and the people are either exiled basically as slaves or killed, God's word says, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What does that mean? What happens after you die? So God is calling you and me, we're all still alive here, thank the Lord, to repentance in the face of what happens to a stubborn people who refuse to turn to God. God is calling us to repentant faith. Uh, second, there are three key questions to prepare for the day of accounting. The day of accounting. And you get them in Isaiah 10.3. Let me commend Isaiah 10.3 to you as something to put on your mirror over Isaiah 9.10. Please don't go around spouting off 9.10 unless you really want to invoke God's judgment, you know, like today. 10.3, um, these are questions that investment advisors and all of us ought to have in front of us. There are the three basic questions. What will you do? To whom will you run for help? And where will you leave your wealth? The first question, of course, is what are you gonna do when the trouble comes from afar? And that afar language, we get it confirmed in Isaiah 10.5. I didn't read on to 10.5, but it tells us it's the Assyrian Empire, okay? This is the final, the, the final stanza we're dealing about when the Assyrians come and when you're totally taken out, okay? not just being messed with by the Philistines. This is the big boys coming to town. And by the way, the, the Assyrians, they cut people's heads off, they take people as slaves, they rape, pillage, that's what's coming, God says. I, I've been telling you for decades, for generations, now they're coming, what are you gonna do? Question number one. The third question is where will you leave your wealth? Remember God said to the rich man, fool, this very night, your soul is required from you. But then the central question, to whom will you run for help? God's righteous hand that judges also justifies. That's my good news, number three. 
God's righteous hand that judges also justifies and saves all who repent and trust in Christ. See, this is an amazing thing. God's hand, I mean, this is a basic word in Hebrew, yod. I mean, you can imagine the word for hand is one of the earliest words, right? Yod. And yodo, his hand, which can bring judgment, also offers salvation if you will turn to him. I mean, his hand is so strong to save that, you know what? He allowed it to be stretched out and nailed to a cross and bleed to cover your sin and deliver you from sin. I mean, that's how strong. So you see, because here's, here's the amazing news of the New Testament and of the, of the Bible. You're saved through judgment. You are not escaping. You're justified by faith. Did you hear me? Under God's judgment, you are saved through the perfect righteousness of God's right hand, which is Jesus Christ. Will you take his hand? Psalm 136, verse 12, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, his steadfast love endures forever. Isaiah 41, 10, you've heard this from me before. It's one of the key fear not passages in Isaiah. You've got to remember these passages now. Remember, Isaiah 41, 10, just bought Nancy a necklace for anniversary that has this on it. Fear not, for I am with you, God says. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. His hand that brings judgment on sin and evil can also deliver you from sin and evil and through judgment unto sanctification and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And whose hand is that? It's the hand that I just talked about that was nailed for your salvation. Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. He laid his right hand on me. And what does that right hand look like? We already know it, right? It's got a nail mark in it. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. There's that word, there's that command again, right? Fear not, for I am the first and the last. Which brings us back to Jesus's message, rich toward God. And a lot of people struggle with that. Are we talking about, no, of course we're not talking about buying our salvation. It has nothing to do with that. But someone who is saved, you show me a born-again Christian who doesn't tithe and give beyond the tithe, you, you'll blow me away. Because everybody who actually is born in the Spirit, born in the Spirit of grace of God, is generous and gracious and rich toward God, right? It comes from faith. So Jesus teaches us we can't take worldly wealth with us. So here's the good news. He sets us free. He sets us free. Jesus, the truth, sets us free to be rich toward God. As he tells us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Oh man, may your heart, may your treasure be in heaven. May you indeed be set free to be rich toward God. And may his hand be the hand of salvation and deliverance for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.